Gresham College presents Governance, Trust and Business by Sir Michael Snyder, Deputy Chairman of the Policy and Resources Committee of the City of London. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome uh, to Gresham College this evening. I'm Roderick Flood. I'm the Provost of the College, uh, relatively newly appointed Provost of the College, and it's a particular pleasure as one of the first events uh, which I'm chairing at the college to uh, introduce Michael Snyder to you. So Michael is um, a very long-standing member of the corporation of the, the Court of Common Council of the City of London since 1986 and has filled I think most of the important offices um, of the corporation, chairman of the Finance Committee, the Barbican Estate Committee, um, and most recently chair for some long period, very productive and important period for the city of the Policy and Resources Committee. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the uh, nomenclature of the City of London, the Policy and Resources Committee is the important committee, the most important committee, and in a sense, in a, in a non-political uh, organisation like the Corporation of London, Michael has essentially been the leader of the corporation for some period, working, of course, with the, the aldermen, the members of the Court of Common Council, and the Lord Mayor, successive Lord Mayors. And I think he has achieved um, a very considerable reputation, both in the city and much more generally with government, and has uh, undertaken a number of tasks for uh, governments during that period. He's also, I have to say, um, from my perspective of interest in education, been uh, a, a most uh, eloquent and continued supporter of educational activity. As um, a governor of our school, I was at the same school as him, Brentwood, and he has been an extremely important person in uh, developing that, um, I think, very excellent school in Essex. But he's also been a governor of my university, my former university, London Metropolitan University, and governor of the City of London School for Girls. So we're really privileged to have you here, Michael, this evening to speak to us. And I'm going to ask you to speak on governance, trust, and business. And Michael has said that he's very happy to take questions uh, when he's finished his remarks. So, Michael, over to you. Well, thank you very much, Roderick. Um, when I agreed uh, in a weak moment uh, a while ago to, to deliver today's lecture, I guessed that the topic might be uh, relevant and current. Uh, but like all of us, I suspect, I didn't uh, anticipate just how current and how relevant it is. The concepts of governance and trust, how businesses are managed, how they interact with their stakeholders, are right at the centre of the current financial crisis. And the spotlight will be on them as never before as we go into the recovery period. Before I address the main topic of today, however, I would like to just discuss briefly a few of the different possibilities as to what has caused the current financial crisis. One of the most prevalent explanations is that banks had believed that the credit markets 
were possibly being too overcautious in regards to the scale of defaults on US subprime mortgages. The banks predicted that confidence would be restored in the following few months and that the high-risk attitude would once again be able to continue. However, this attitude did not return, as according to the Bank of England's Financial Stability Review, uh, there was a global reappraisal of risk. The report concluded that the recent global credit uh, boom had led to the creation of assets whose liquidity and credit quality were of uncertain value in any climate other than one of unbridled optimism. Some may also say that it was a change in the stability of the British banking system. Between 1717 and 1931, British banking was stabilised through the gold standard and was associated with the highest level of trust. In these times, it was classified as a sort of relationship uh, banking scenario where your local bank manager uh, was seen as a family friend. The banks would only lend money to people that they know would repay them. However, the banking system was under some stress due to the enormous debt arising uh, from World War I and the reluctance of the British banking system to revalue the pound uh, against its current gold standard. Coupled with the US banking system entering into some fairly foolish investments in the 1920s, the global debt escalated and was the major factor, I think, in the Great Depression and a huge com contributor in the 30s uh, to the onset of World War II. After the Great Depression and World War II, this style of banking went into full decline. The former picture of the lifelong friendly bank manager there to advise and keep clients out of financial trouble soon disappeared, particularly as large investment banks um, became more interested in investing in one-off transactions and increasingly investing in derivative products. Ultimately, the global banking system began to follow the US banking uh, style, which focuses on taking higher risks in order to gain higher re returns, um, with the promises, of course, of high uh, bonuses, large bonuses for employees. Um, they became very much more willing to take high risks with the bank's money. This helped to create a loss of trust and confidence in the British banking system. In an environment where a mutual trust between customer and bank was once the foundation of our financial system, this new American attitude, as it were, towards high profits and high risks had severely damaged people's confidence and trust in the system. It has been suggested that a possible solution to the crisis is for our banks to go back to their original roots and focus much more on protecting the client's interests as well as the banks, rather than just focusing on big rewards. But this whole attitude shift has been fueled by the vicious circle of media linking expectations of high returns with envy, greed, and a failure to understand that big rewards means high risk. Another theory as to the cause of the crisis is the breakdown of the floating currency system. 
A fixed currency system has, had been initiated at the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944, where the US dollar uh, was set at $35 per ounce of gold, and all other currencies were then set as a fixed rate uh, to the dollar. The second and e equally important aspect of the Bretton Woods Agreement was the creation of the World Bank and the IMF to regulate trade through monetary support. When the United States resorted to funding the Vietnam War through inflation, the price of gold rocketed as investors turned to commodities to hedge against this inflation. Confidence in the dollar started to slide and other countries began to seek, as the gold standard allowed them to, uh, the conversion of their dollars into gold. This combination resulted in a gold drain uh, and forced President Nixon to end Bretton Woods in 1971, which reduced the capability of the International Monetary Fund to regulate global transactions. Now we have had 37 years of trade deficit not being self-regulating because of the floating currency. The other nations involved, of course, were happy to let the United States run these deficits deficits since this provided liquidity in the international monetary system. This created a, a sort of glut of false money which dramatically increased investment opportunities, raising property prices and so on as larger than normal amounts of money were available to chase fewer opportunities, the uh, supply and demand principle. This caused the inevitable bubble and the current bust because so much investment, mainly in the United States, was being defaulted on, the ultimate loser was not only national financial institutions, but trade surplus nations as well, causing the global negative effect we are facing today. Well, whatever you think the cause is, although it, uh, it, you know, is, it, it, it almost certainly emanated from the world's largest economy, the financial crisis has had a number of different effects on the economy. For the first time in 16 years, our own economy is contracting and at a faster rate than was anticipated. In addition, the value of the stock market has reduced, unemployment is rising, house prices are beginning to fall, and many companies are beginning, beginning to have cash flow problems. So what effect has the crisis had specifically on trust and confidence in business and governance. I believe that what has happened, what is happening, is tied very closely to the idea of trust and confidence. Inevitably, the media, and indeed some political commentators who should know better, are painting a, a picture of failure of the business model which I believe is a vital part of free society. It's far too easy, isn't it, to depict business, especially financial services business, as a conspiracy against the public good, rather than a generator of wealth, of tax revenue, and of economic growth. So let me first accept that there have been failures of governance, governance failures of trust, and failures in the system of law and regulation which underpins but should not replace that trust and governance. Things have gone wrong and I believe 
that a, a loss of trust and confidence in our uh, financial system is at the core of this crisis. For example, banks lend money or grant credit because they believe that there's a good chance of getting it back uh, together with some interest. Now they see the risk-reward balance being tilted away from them to the extent that, for a while, their credit with each other also ran dry. They no longer believed, post-Lehman's, post-Bear Stearns, in each other's ability to repay loans and pay interest, therefore creating a massive decline in the liquidity in the market. Restoring that trust has taken massive interventions by governments and central banks, flooding the system with liquidity so that it is accessible for all banks. But that is only the start of the process which restores credit to families and to businesses. And working through that process will be long and painful. In fact, the governments of the world are now underpinning confidence in the financial system. And one government, Iceland, has already really lost that battle. However, I do believe that with the governments of all of the world's major economies, importantly, including China as a surplus country, uh, have taken, uh, and having taken that concerted action, it will succeed. And in parallel to restoring liquidity, credit, and the financial system, it's also imperative to restore confidence in the way that financial services and banking companies run and govern themselves. Trust is really central to the debate. As the senior partner of a top 20 accountancy firm, I belong to a profession for which a major task is restoring or inspiring even business confidence. And confidence springs from trust. So those involved in a business, the shareholders, the investors, suppliers and customers, all need to have access to information such as audited accounts and information uh, and, and informed uh, professional opinions. And I believe accountants are, boring as though some of us may be, uh, central to that process. The worrying issue is that trust in professionals generally is now questioned very frequently. There is no longer the, the former assumed respect and trust that there used to be. And successive governments are partly uh, responsible for dumbing down the independence and integrity of these professions by considerable external regulation as opposed to public oversight of self-regulation. We tend now, don't we, to be wary of professionals and question their credibility, their intentions, and all of this without any evidence whatsoever of wrongdoing. Indeed, government itself uh, fuels this process as well. I'm not here, of course, to take pot shots at Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. Taxes are necessary contributions of civil society and public services must be maintained and improved. But there has been a worrying move, trend as it were, in recent years, away from the revenue assuming that legitimate businesses would set out to pay the tax uh, which was lawfully due from them and that their accountants would advise them in such a way. 
so that the process worked efficiently and with a minimum of confrontation. The tendency of some parts of the revenue is to treat all businesses and their advisors in an adversarial way, without, I've got to say, any evidence, as potential tax evaders and criminals, and as, I think, helped damage that trust. And here, I do believe that successive governments must accept some of the blame. And then there is corporate governance. And you'll all be familiar with the streams of work that have been done on this topic since the 80s. The achievements, especially of, say, Sir Adrian Cadbury, and the establishments of, establishment of codes, which depend on the excellent principle of comply or explain. In other words, if a company is going to run its governance in a way that differs from the accepted norms, then it should say so. In this way, the wider stakeholder community can make an informed decision on whether or not to enter into a relationship with it. And it is the perception that government, governance has failed that is a major part of the criticism directed at financial services firms, especially the large investment banks. A global investment bank is an incredibly complex organisation, dealing across borders, across time zones, in dozens of markets and in hundreds of products. And it makes such a bank a challenge to manage, let alone to govern. To say this, of course, is not to make excuses for failures of management, of regulation or of supervision, but it is to suggest that there is always a danger in businesses becoming too complex. When those who are responsible for governing, as well as for managing a business, cannot actually understand the complexities of it and are not empowered to ask the right questions, something is wrong. And it, is, and it clearly was wrong in a number of cases where senior management either didn't understand the totaling, the summation or accumulation of the risks that the companies were running or believed wrongly that the risk-reward ratio was still tilted very much in their favour. Good governance should be about focusing on the things that really matter. Integrity, independence of thought and long-term returns for shareholders, not just for very senior management. In addition, for good governance to work, it is important not to spend too much time on process or on box ticking. Good governance and good legislation are the allies, not the opponent of innovation and of competitiveness. One of the biggest dangers, I think, as we, re as we recover from the current crisis is that government regulators and institutional shareholders will insist on prescriptive structures. This will in turn suppress innovation, corporate growth and development. Where not just the mature, careful assessment of risk, but an attitude of safety first becomes embedded. This will be a particular danger in those banks where government has taken significant stakes, quite rightly in my opinion, and nominated its own directors. I believe that we need to resist the continuing drive towards a risk-free society in all its manifestations. 
We need to avoid the danger of creating a boring, dumbed-down, blame-weary society. This has never been possible, and I doubt it ever will be. Um, we all need to stretch assets, take balanced risks, and to develop and improve. It will be a challenge for regulators to avoid moving away from regimes which encourage innovation and competitiveness towards the heavy-handed approach that if something is not explicitly allowed, it is forbidden. But I suggest that as, the global, as global economic activity subsides and trade slows, there will be even more, not less need, for new ideas and for balanced and mature risk-taking. British law and practice still enshrine the position of the shareholder as the owner of the business, as the stakeholder with a completely different status from other stakeholders. Directors are still employed by the shareholders, and non-executive directors have a special responsibility towards them as independent representatives of their interests. There are other issues surrounding the supply, and, and uh, supply of qualified and experienced non-execs and about their interaction with employed directors. But in most cases, the system works. The caricature of the amiable friend of the chairman attending a short monthly board meeting followed by a good lunch and a good glass of wine has been for some years just that, a caricature. Let us instead ensure that the board exercises its role properly. Back, perhaps, to the chief executive and his insistence on comprehensive verbal explanations of a product, not only for an individual product, but for the effect on the whole business and on its counterparties. Let us also applaud work by institutional representative shareholders, investment and pension funds and insurance companies to insist on pr proper standards of governance. This is good as long as they remember that the individual shareholder is by no means dead yet and as long as they do not go too far in damaging good management on personal feelings or whims or indeed get carried away sometimes with their own importance. You may remember I said earlier that statute, law and imposed regulation support trust and good governance. They don't replace it. This is, I think, the central message for the, difficulty, for the difficult months ahead. Legal frameworks are needed. They need to be effective, responsive, transparent and applied to everyone. The structure of English common law, with its root in, roots in common sense and precedent, provides just such a framework. But its aim must be for trust and good self-governance to flourish, not to remove or try to eliminate the need for them. So what can be done about the current crisis? What is the current situation in the city? Is it all doom and gloom or is there some hope for the future? Yes, it is obviously true that confidence in financial institutions ha has been damaged and there is a definite lack of trust. But in order to pull out of this current or impending economic slump, which some 
say will last for over 18 months. We need to work out how to put that trust and confidence back into the system. In one of his recent articles, the Prime Minister has been advocating the revival of the Bretton Woods Agreement in order to build a global society. He has urged uh, President-elect Barack Obama to reject the ideas of protectionism and putting up trade barriers to protect American jobs. Gordon Brown's main theory is that strong banks, unfrozen markets, greater transparency and international supervision are the key are the four keys to recovery. He stresses that in order to recreate confidence in financial systems, it's crucial for all banks in Britain to meet certain capital requirements. Secondly, it's vital to open the money markets that have been closed for medium-term funding from the private sector as, it as its current closure reflects a loss of confidence between banks. He is quoted saying, the role of banks is to circulate the savings from deposits, our pensions and from companies to those who need to spend or invest them. The cost at which banks can borrow this money directly affects, or nearly directly affects, the cost of mortgages for homeowners and of lending for businesses. This paralysis of lending from loss of confidence jeopardises the flow of money to every family and every business in the country. Thirdly, he recommends stronger international rules for transparency, including disclosure and a higher standard of conduct, claiming that successful market economies need trust, which can only be built through shared values. And fourthly, he mentions that national systems of supervision are simply inadequate to cope with the huge cross-continental flows of capital that we are dealing with today. The Financial Stability Forum and a reformed IMF should play their part uh, not just in the crisis resolution, but also in crisis prevention. However, others have said that the restrengthening or reformation of the IMF and World Bank could actually make things worse in the long run. In Gordon's proposal, he assumes that financial regulators were inadequate and need to be strengthened in order to prevent future crises. And, of course, this may well be true, However, according to a report by the Heritage Foundation, the Federal Reserve and the US Treasury did actually warn financial companies such as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac about the continuing risks, but they chose not to take the advice. The Bush administration even proposed in Congress to restrict these high-risk practices, but the proposal was rejected. So, this leads to the question, does it not? If national financial systems and governments were pre-warned about these potential risks, how would the restructuring of, restructuring of global financial regulators assist in any way? Who would know better than the national government about its own current financial situation? Personally, I believe the answer is somewhere in the middle. Instead of a single world regulator, I think that having an international forum for regulators, perhaps based on the G20, to coordinate the supervision of global institutions could be a possible solution. 
To get national regulators working together would be desirable and a positive contributor to understanding and to stability. I would not favour, as one or two voices in Europe are, a single European regulator. As frankly, it wouldn't work. This crisis is a global one, and one region could never operate in isolation, but could add costs in that region, making it uncompetitive. I also welcome the Mayor of London, Boris Johnson's forward-looking, positive approach to helping with the economy, with plans like refocusing the London Development Agency's £400 million budget towards promoting jobs, skills and economic growth, investing £600 million uh, in training to give Londoners the skills that they need, introducing a range of energy-efficient measures and lobbying government to have a competitive tax regime to ensure that London remains a global centre. These ideas are, of course, very similar to those of the City of London Corporation, some of which stem back to work that I did in my former role, uh, as Roderick has said, as Chairman of Policy and Resources. We helped, the uh, we helped promote the city by influencing the framework in which we operate, including regulation and competitive taxation, by influencing infrastructure, pushing ahead with over 50 major infrastructure projects, such as upgrades to the tube, and indeed by Crossrail, which we also helped to fund, by ensuring uh, security and safety, and I don't mean just physical uh, security and safety, but economic security and indeed a focused police force, and by creating and influencing the environment in which we live and work, schools, culture, medicine, shops, in fact, and in short, to be a nice place to live. We've also promoted the city looking outwards by opening offices in Brussels to engage in the influencing of the vast amounts of regulation emanating from the European Union, and in China and India to ensure we remain a global magnet for business and talent. Indeed, also to form relationships that will last as those vast economies become eminent. Whatever the right idea is, financial systems are the oil of the economic engine, essential for each one of us. So it is imperative that we work together in these difficult times to solve the current issues. Financial services and banks need to be large enough to cope with the vast global trading corporations, even if this makes management or governance of these institutions more difficult. We need to rise to those challenges. Throughout time, it has been capital that has expanded the human condition with its ability to encourage not only trade, but advance technology. And it is in this vein that the financial system must be once again allowed to flourish as a free market without government ownership right though that was at the time, and not die under the constraints of total regulation. Communism in the former Soviet Union died because of its lack of capital and the opportunity and the lack of opportunity 
for reward from capital. There are those, thankfully few, in the United States and Europe, and indeed uh, one or two in the United Kingdom, who believe that regulations should restrict or restrain. But in a global competitive world, this merely means that global businesses will operate and center themselves elsewhere, much to the economic detriment of London and the UK. I suggest that the answer instead lies in proportionate regulation and the re-establishment of effective internal governance where it's been damaged. This would help direct companies and their shareholders towards the generation of strategic or long-term returns rather than short-term ones. This is significant as it may be that one of the effects of this crisis will be to reassert the value of long-term corporate performance over the pursuit of short-term returns. This is a time when we need to be promoting London and other UK cities to foreign business investors. With the dramatic decrease of the pound and the continuous decline in property prices, particularly commercial ones at the moment, London is becoming more and more affordable and desirable for foreign travel and investment. Times are, of course, very serious and difficult, and no one knows exactly how events will unfold over the next months. We could, of course, all continue to concentrate on the downside, both of the financial and economic markets. But at some stage, and who knows when, a few people are, are, are going to realise that halved share values, halved property prices, prices and decimated bank values are good buying opportunities. And then there will, I think, be a rapid rise in those same prices. What happened, whatever happens and when, I really believe that this country, this trading nation, with its relatively small domestic markets, needs to nurture and promote its financial and professional services industries. As you can probably tell, I'm an optimist. And I think that this is with good cause. I've run my own firm through a previous uh, recession and will do so through this current crisis. We need all of us to actively look for the opportunities that this crisis gives to create an even more competitive and, uh, and in innovative environment for our financial and professional services for the future. As with all business cycles experienced over the last 300 years, the economy always recovers and continues to grow. And this will be no exception. And with the positive and swift moves, uh, movements experienced across the globe, we are already moving towards the turning of the tide. So in conclusion, even in these troubled times, there is hope. We forget this sometimes. Take a look around you the next time you're walking around the city when you came here. It's still a very much fast-paced environment and a city on the go. Things have and will go on even in these turbulent times. However, in order to progress and climb out of the current crisis, we must ensure that we fully restore trust, confidence and good governance back into our financial systems. The journey will indeed be rocky 
and I'm sure that we'll all be affected in one way or another. But London is a city that can and will survive through these tough times. Thank you. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.